Day 8 of Totus Tuus' Novena With quotes from John Paul II's encyclical Evangelium Vitae Within the people of life and the people for life the family has a decisive responsibility. This responsibility flows from its very nature as a community of life and love founded upon marriage and from its mission to guard, reveal and communicate love. Here it is a matter of God's own love, of which parents are co-workers and, as it were, interpreters when they transmit life and raise it according to his fatherly plan. This is the love that becomes selflessness, receptiveness and gift. Within the family, each member is accepted, respected and honoured, precisely because he or she is a person. And if any family member is in greater need, the care which he or she receives is all the more intense and attentive. The family has a special role to play throughout the life of its members, from birth to death. It is truly the sanctuary of life, the place in which life, the gift of God, can be properly welcomed and protected against the many attacks to which it is exposed and can develop in accordance with what constitutes authentic human growth. Consequently, the role of the family in building a culture of life is decisive and irreplaceable. As the domestic church, the family is summoned to proclaim, celebrate and serve the gospel of life. This is a responsibility which first concerns married couples, called to be givers of life on the basis of an ever greater awareness of the meaning of procreation as a unique event which clearly reveals that human life is a gift received in order then to be given as a gift. In giving origin to a new life, parents recognize that the child, as the fruit of their mutual gift of love, is, in turn, a gift for both of them, a gift which flows from them. It is above all in raising children that the family fulfills its mission to proclaim the gospel of life. By word and example, in the daily round of relations and choices, and through concrete actions and signs, parents lead their children to authentic freedom, actualized in the sincere gift of self, and they cultivate in them respect for others, a sense of justice, cordial openness, dialogue, generous service, solidarity, and all the other values which help people to live life as a gift. In raising children, Christian parents must be concerned about their children's faith and help them to fulfill the vocation God has given them. The parents' missions as educators also includes teaching and giving their children an example of the true meaning of suffering and death. They will be able to do this if they are sensitive to all kinds of suffering around them, and even more, if they succeed in fostering attitudes of closeness, assistance and sharing towards sick and elderly members of the family. The family celebrates the gospel of life through daily prayer, both individual prayer and family prayer. 
the family prays in order to glorify and give thanks to God for the gift of life, and implores his light and strength in order to face times of difficulty and suffering without losing hope. But the celebration which gives meaning to every other form of prayer and worship is found in the family's actual daily life together, if it is a life of love and self-giving. This celebration thus becomes a service to the gospel of life, expressed through solidarity as experienced within and around the family in the form of concerned, attentive and loving care shown in the humble, ordinary events of each day. A particularly significant expression of solidarity between families is a willingness to adopt and take in children abandoned by their parents or in situations of serious hardship. True parental love is ready to go beyond the bonds of flesh and blood in order to accept children from other families, offering them whatever is necessary for their well-being and full development. Among the various forms of adoption, consideration should be given to adoption at a distance, preferable in cases where the only reason for giving up the child is the extreme poverty of the child's family. Through this type of adoption, Parents are given the help needed to support and raise their children without their being uprooted from their natural environment. As a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good, solidarity also needs to be practised through participation in social and political life. Serving the gospel of life thus means that the family, particularly through its membership of family associations, works to ensure that the laws and institutions of the state in no way violate the right to life, from conception to natural death, but rather protect and promote it. Special attention must be given to the elderly. While in some cultures older people remain a part of the family with an important and active role, in others the elderly are regarded as a useless burden and are left to themselves. Here, the temptation to resort to euthanasia can more easily arise. Neglect of the elderly or their outright rejection are intolerable. Their presence in the family, or at least their closeness to the family, in cases where limited living space or other reasons make this impossible, is of fundamental importance in creating a climate of mutual interaction and enriching communication between the different age groups. It is therefore important to preserve, or to re-establish, where it has been lost, a sort of covenant between generations. In this way, parents, in their later years, can receive from their children the acceptance and solidarity which they themselves gave to their children when they brought them into the world. This is required by obedience to the divine commandment to honour one's father and mother. But there is more. The elderly are not only to be considered the object of our concern, closeness and service. They themselves have a valuable contribution to make to the gospel of life. Thanks to the rich treasury of experiences they have acquired through the years, the elderly can and must be sources of wisdom and witnesses of hope and love. Although it is true that the future of humanity passes by way of the family, it must be admitted that modern social, economic and cultural conditions make the family's task of serving life 
more difficult and demanding. In order to fulfil its vocation as the sanctuary of life, as the cell of a society which loves and welcomes life, the family urgently needs to be helped and supported. Communities and states must guarantee all the support, including economic support, which families need in order to meet their problems in a truly human way. For her part, the Church must untiringly promote a plan of pastoral care for families, capable of making every family rediscover and live with joy and courage its mission to further the gospel of life. Walk as children of light and try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. In our present social context, marked by a dramatic struggle between the culture of life and the culture of death, there is need to develop a deep critical sense, capable of discerning true values and authentic needs. What is urgently called for is a general mobilisation of consciences and a united ethical effort to activate a great campaign in support of life. All together, we must build a new culture of life. New, because it will be able to confront and solve today's unprecedented problems affecting human life. New, because it will be adopted with deeper and more dynamic conviction by all Christians. New, because it will be capable of bringing about serious and courageous cultural dialogue among all parties. While the urgent need for such a cultural transformation is linked to the present historical situation, it is also rooted in the Church's mission of evangelization. The purpose of the Gospel, in fact, is to transform humanity from within and to make it new. Like the yeast which leavens the whole measure of dough, the Gospel is meant to permeate all cultures and give them life from within, so that they may express the full truth about the human person and about human life. We need to begin with the renewal of a culture of life within Christian communities themselves. Too often it happens that believers, even those who take an active part in the life of the Church, end up by separating their Christian faith from its ethical requirements concerning life, and thus fall into moral subjectivism and certain objectionable ways of acting. With great openness and courage, we need to question how widespread is the culture of life today among individual Christians, families, groups and communities in our diocese. With equal clarity and determination, we must identify the steps we are called to take in order to serve life in all its truth. At the same time, we need to promote a serious and in-depth exchange about basic issues of human life with everyone, including non-believers, in intellectual circles, in the various professional spheres, and at the level of people's everyday life. The first and fundamental step towards this cultural transformation consists in forming consciences with regard to the incomparable and inviolable worth of every human life. It is of the greatest importance to re-establish the essential connection between life and freedom. These are inseparable goods. Where one is violated, the other also ends up being violated.
there is no true freedom where life is not welcomed and loved, and there is no fullness of life except in freedom. Both realities have something inherent and specific which links them inextricably, the vocation to love. Love, as a sincere gift of self, is what gives the life and freedom of the person their truest meaning. No less critical in the formation of conscience is the recovery of the necessary link between freedom and truth. As I have frequently stated, when freedom is detached from objective truth, it becomes impossible to establish personal rights on a firm rational basis, and the ground is laid for society to be at the mercy of the unrestrained will of individuals or the oppressive totalitarianism of public authority. It is therefore essential that man should acknowledge his inherent condition as a creature to whom God has granted being and life as a gift and a duty. Only by admitting his innate dependence can man live and use his freedom to the full, and at the same time respect the life and freedom of every other person. Here especially one sees that, at the heart of every culture, lies the attitude man takes to the greatest mystery, the mystery of God. Where God is denied and people live as though he did not exist, or his commandments were not taken into account, the dignity of the human person and the inviolability of human life also end up being rejected or compromised. Closely connected with the formation of conscience, is the work of education, which helps individuals to be ever more human, leads them ever more fully to the truth, instills in them growing respect for life, and trains them in right interpersonal relationships. In particular, there is a need for education about the value of life from its very origins. It is an illusion to think that we can build a true culture of human life if we do not help the young to accept and experience sexuality and love and the whole of life according to their true meaning and in their close interconnection. Sexuality, which enriches the whole person, manifests its inmost meaning in leading the person to the gift of self in love. The trivialization of sexuality is among the principal factors which have led to the contempt for new life. Only a true love is able to protect life. There can be no avoiding the duty to offer, especially to adolescents and young adults, an authentic education in sexuality and in love, an education which involves training in chastity as a virtue which fosters personal maturity and makes one capable of respecting the spousal meaning of the body. The work of educating in the service of life involves the training of married couples in responsible procreation. In its true meaning, responsible procreation requires couples to be obedient to the Lord's call and to act as faithful interpreters of his plan. This happens when the family is generously open to new lives and when couples maintain an attitude of openness and service to life, even if, for serious reasons and in respect for the moral law, they choose to avoid a new birth for the time being or indefinitely. The moral law 
obliges them in every case to control the impulse of instinct and passion and to respect the biological laws inscribed in their person. It is precisely this respect which makes legitimate at the service of responsible procreation the use of natural methods of regulating fertility. From the scientific point of view, these methods are becoming more and more accurate and make it possible in practice to make choices in harmony with moral values. An honest appraisal of their effectiveness should dispel certain prejudices which are still widely held and should convince married couples as well as healthcare and social workers of the importance of proper training in this area. The Church is grateful to those who, with personal sacrifice and often unacknowledged dedication, devote themselves to the study and spread of these methods, as well as to the promotion of education and the moral values which they presuppose. The work of education cannot avoid a consideration of suffering and death. These are a part of human existence, and it is futile, not to say misleading, to try to hide them or ignore them. On the contrary, people must be helped to understand their profound mystery in all its harsh reality. Even pain and suffering have meaning and value when they are experienced in close connection with love received and given. In this regard, I have called for the yearly celebration of the World Day of the Sick, emphasizing the salvific nature of the offering up of suffering which, experienced in communion with Christ, belongs to the very essence of the redemption. Death itself is anything but an event without hope. It is the door which opens wide on eternity, and for those who live in Christ, an experience of participation in the mystery of his death and resurrection. In a word, we can say that the cultural change which we are calling for demands from everyone the courage to adopt a new lifestyle, consisting in making practical choices at the personal, family, social and international level, on the basis of a correct scale of values. The primacy of being over having, of the person over things. This renewed lifestyle involves the passing from indifference to concern for others, from rejection to acceptance of them. Other people are not rivals from whom we must defend ourselves, but brothers and sisters to be supported. They are to be loved for their own sakes, and they enrich us by their very presence. In this mobilization for a new culture of life, no one must feel excluded. Everyone has an important role to play. Together with the family, teachers and educators have a particularly valuable contribution to make. Much will depend on them if young people, trained in true freedom, are to be able to preserve for themselves and make known to others new, authentic ideals of life, and if they are to grow in respect for and service to every other person, in the family and in society. Intellectuals can also do much to build a new culture of human life. A special task falls to Catholic intellectuals, who are called to be present and active in the leading centres where culture is formed, in schools and universities, 
in places of scientific and technological research, of artistic creativity, and of the study of man. Allowing their talents and activity to be nourished by the living force of the gospel, they ought to place themselves at the service of a new culture of life by offering serious and well-documented contributions, capable of commanding general respect and interest by reason of their merit. It was precisely for this purpose that I established the Pontifical Academy for Life, assigning it the task of studying and providing information and training about the principal problems of law and biomedicine pertaining to the promotion of life, especially in the direct relationship they have with Christian morality and the directives of the Church's Magisterium. A specific contribution will also have to come from universities, particularly from Catholic universities, and from centres, institutes and committees of bioethics. An important and serious responsibility belongs to those involved in mass media, who are called to ensure that the messages which they so effectively transmit will support the culture of life. They need to present noble models of life and make room for instances of people's positive and sometimes heroic love for others. With great respect, they should also present the positive values of sexuality and human love, and not insist on what defiles and cheapens human dignity. In their interpretation of things, they should refrain from emphasizing anything that suggests or fosters feelings or attitudes of indifference, contempt or rejection in relation to life. With scrupulous concern for factual truth, they are called to combine freedom of information with respect for every person and a profound sense of humanity. In transforming culture so that it supports life, women occupy a place in thought and action which is unique and decisive. It depends on them to promote a new feminism which rejects the temptation of imitating models of male domination in order to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of women in every aspect of the life of society and overcome all discrimination, violence and exploitation. Making my own the words of the concluding message of the Second Vatican Council, I address to women this urgent appeal. Reconcile people with life. You are called to bear witness to the meaning of genuine love, of that gift of self and of that acceptance of others which are present in a special way in the relationship of husband and wife, but which ought also to be at the heart of every other interpersonal relationship. The experience of motherhood makes you acutely aware of the other person, and at the same time confers on you a particular task. Motherhood involves a special communion with the mystery of life, as it develops in the woman's womb. This unique contact with a new human being developing within her gives rise to an attitude towards human beings, not only towards her own child, but every human being, which profoundly marks the woman's personality. A mother welcomes and carries in herself another human being, enabling it to grow inside her, giving it room, respecting it in its otherness, Women first learn and then teach others that human relations are authentic if they are open to accepting the other person. 
a person who is recognized and loved because of the dignity which comes from being a person, and not from other considerations, such as usefulness, strength, intelligence, beauty or health. This is the fundamental contribution which the Church and humanity expect from women, and it is the indispensable prerequisite for an authentic cultural change. I would now like to say a special word to women who have had an abortion. The Church is aware of the many factors which may have influenced your decision, and she does not doubt that in many cases it was a painful and even shattering decision. The wound in your heart may not yet have healed. Certainly what happened was and remains terribly wrong. But do not give in to discouragement and do not lose hope. Try rather to understand what happened and face it honestly. If you have not already done so, give yourselves over with humility and trust to repentance. The Father of mercies is ready to give you his forgiveness and his peace in the sacrament of reconciliation. To the same Father and his mercy, you can with sure hope entrust your child with the friendly and expert help and advice of other people, and as a result of your own painful experience, you can be among the most eloquent defenders of everyone's right to life. Through your commitment to life, whether by accepting the birth of other children, or by welcoming and caring for those most in need of someone to be close to them, you will become promoters of a new way of looking at human life. In this great endeavour to create a new culture of life, we are inspired and sustained by the confidence that comes from knowing that the gospel of life, like the kingdom of God itself, is growing and producing abundant fruit. There is certainly an enormous disparity between the powerful resources available to the forces promoting the culture of death and the means at the disposal of those working for a culture of life and love. But we know that we can rely on the help of God, for whom nothing is impossible. Filled with a certainty, and moved by profound concern for the destiny of every man and woman, I repeat what I said to those families who carry out their challenging mission amid so many difficulties. A great prayer for life is urgently needed, a prayer which will rise up throughout the world. Through special initiatives and in daily prayer, may an impassioned plea rise to God, the creator and lover of life, from every Christian community, from every group and association, from every family and from the heart of every believer. Jesus himself has shown us by his own example that prayer and fasting are the first and most effective weapons against the forces of evil. As he taught his disciples, some demons cannot be driven out except in this way. Let us therefore discover anew the humility and the courage to pray and fast so that power from on high will break down the walls of lies and deceit, the walls which conceal from the sight of so many of our brothers and sisters the evil and practices and laws which are hostile to life. May this same power 
turn their hearts to resolutions and goals inspired by the civilization of life and love. We are writing you this that our joy may be complete. The revelation of the gospel of life is given to us as a good to be shared with all people, so that all men and women may have fellowship with us and with the Trinity. Our own joy would not be complete if we failed to share this gospel with others, but kept it only for ourselves. The gospel of life is not for believers alone. It is for everyone. The issue of life and its defence and promotion is not a concern of Christians alone. Although faith provides special light and strength, this question arises in every human conscience which seeks the truth and which cares about the future of humanity. Life certainly has a sacred and religious value, but in no way is that value a concern only of believers. The value at stake is one which every human being can grasp by the light of reason. Thus, it necessarily concerns everyone. Consequently, all that we do as the people of life and for life should be interpreted correctly and welcome with favour. When the Church declares that unconditional respect for the right to life of every innocent person, from conception to natural death, is one of the pillars on which every civil society stands, she wants simply to promote a human state, a state which recognises the defence of the fundamental rights of the human person, especially of the weakest, as its primary duty. The gospel of life is for the whole of human society. To be actively pro-life is to contribute to the renewal of society through the promotion of the common good. It is impossible to further the common good without acknowledging and defending the right to life, upon which all the other inalienable rights of individuals are founded and from which they develop. A society lacks solid foundations when, on the one hand, it asserts values such as the dignity of the person, justice and peace, but then, on the other hand, radically acts to the contrary by allowing or tolerating a variety of ways in which human life is devalued and violated, especially where it is weak or marginalised. Only respect for life can be the foundation and guarantee of the most precious and essential goods of society, such as democracy and peace. There can be no true democracy without a recognition of every person's dignity and without respect for his or her rights. Nor can there be true peace unless life is defended and promoted. As Paul VI pointed out, every crime against life is an attack on peace, especially if it strikes at the moral conduct of people. But where human rights are truly professed and publicly recognized and defended, peace becomes the joyful and operative climate of life and society. The people of life rejoices in being able to share its commitment with so many others. Thus may the people for life constantly grow in number and may a new culture of love and solidarity develop for the true good of the whole of human society.
let us pray. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, mother of the living, to you do we entrust the cause of life. Look down, O Mother, upon the vast numbers of babies not allowed to be born, of the poor whose lives are made difficult, of men and women who are victims of brutal violence, of the elderly and the sick, killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy. Grant that all who believe in your Son may proclaim the gospel of life with honesty and love to the people of our time. Obtain for them the grace to accept that gospel as a gift ever new, the joy of celebrating it with gratitude through their lives, and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely, in order to build, together with all people of good will, the civilization of truth and love, to the praise and glory of God, the creator and lover of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.